Welcome back, local citizens. This week, we have the first of a two-part conversation that was recorded in early April of this year, as most of the world was moving into full-on lockdown. Our conversation spans the career of another dynamic diasporan, as well as adjustments to our local living in response to COVID-19. Sit back, relax, and enjoy part one with Yana Fleming. Hi there, local citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, I'm again in Accra, where I'll be for a while. And my guest is about seven or eight hours away from me in another whole part of the world, which you'll learn about in our conversation. Today, we have Yana Fleming, who is a very old friend of mine. We've done all kinds of antics and also business things together, which is fun. She is actually my global citizen inspiration. So she is a communications consultant who has worked on five continents. That means she's kind of lived on five continents, I believe. And she now focuses on capacity building for female entrepreneurs. So let's dive right in talking to Yana and actually journeying through the many different facets of her global citizenship. Yana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're excited to hear. So Yana, first things first, tell us where you're from, where you're local, and what is your craft? So I am originally from the East Coast, uh, Washington, D.C. and New York, but it would be hard for me to say that that's really home. I haven't called that home in ages. The last place I lived in America would be New Orleans, Louisiana, and I tend to like to call that my home. I'm currently in Thailand, partially by choice, but also, of course, given what's going on with COVID-19, I haven't been able to return to Egypt, to Cairo, which is where my life and my apartment and my work is right now. So I have to admit, it's not bad riding out what's going on in paradise. I am in front of the beach and it averages between 89 and 95 degrees a day, and we have gorgeous sun showers, so I can't really complain. Nice, nice, yeah. The tropics is a place to kind of wait this whole thing out. I would definitely agree with that. Definitely, and one of the things that I really would like to say is that it's interesting being in a country where they have so much control over their citizens, and I'm I watch the news from America at night and in the morning because I've got a 13-hour time difference between New York and, and where I'm at. And watching what's going on and some of the irresponsibility of, of individuals, be they preachers, be they just general people, I look at this place, I look at where I'm at right now, and in the province where I live, they just had their first five cases diagnosed. Now, this is really important because COVID has been in Thailand since January, and the and we had the first cases diagnosed here today. And because of this, the local government is actually looking at imposing 
a very, very serious lockdown. We're not talking about the regular curfew that we have right now that stops people from being out between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. This is actually 10 to 15 days of stay in your house. The government will deliver food. You have absolutely no right unless you are dying and being in an ambulance to be outside of your house. And I, I feel that the ties are being very responsible about how they're dealing with it. And I mean, I understand that obviously my civil rights and my personal freedom could you you could say is being trampled on, but I also feel significantly safer because they're taking such drastic measures to make sure that it doesn't become a massive pandemic here. Right. No steep curves. Yeah. Yeah. I exactly. totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's great. But I mean, I'll say here in Ghana, just to give everyone a little bit of an update, and it will be a little bit dated by the time we actually play the episode, but pretty much all of the cases that have flourished in the country are from people who have traveled in. So it's really interesting to see that, that you know, in the last couple of days, we had a jump of 100 new cases. And that's based on the contacts that were traced after tracing people who had come in. So I do commend our government here as well for being very focused on making sure that, you know, we're on a lockdown ourselves, partial as it can be, because, you know, economically, we just don't have the the, the means to be able to just people stay in their apartments because everyone doesn't have an actual home to live in. But to the extent that our president is doing what he can, I do feel much more comfortable, obviously, being here than being in, in New York. So... Yeah. Interesting times we're living in. Definitely. I I can't agree with you more. However, I will say one thing that has been slightly upsetting here is that the Minister of Health has been quite vocal in his disparaging of what are called Farang, which typically means a white Westerner. And he's creating quite a bit of anti-Western sentiment. And yesterday there was a post on Twitter that was suggesting, uh, this is in Phuket, which is the province below me, that was suggesting that Thais collect rocks and use them as slingshots at Western tourists who are not obeying the stay-at-home order. And that they're also blaming the Western tourists on losing their jobs. And when you look at an island like Phuket, which is basically entirely about tourism, the island is about tourism or retirees who are also Western. You talk about people who are saying you're losing your jobs and we don't want you Westerners here anymore. But at the same time, you wouldn't have any jobs if there weren't any Westerners visiting because you work in a hotel or you work in a restaurant or you work at a nightclub or a bar or a massage parlor. And these are all places that are frequented by Westerners and that keep the economy afloat. So, And this is the first time that I've ever actually felt. Now, true, in my particular province, it's a very small, I live in a very small town, maybe about 1,500 people. We have two stoplights, neither of which are working right now. And I don't feel the anti-Western sentiment, but when I read it, it's in every article that's coming out nowadays. Mm, hmm. Wow. I mean, we've had a little bit of that here. I'm on a, um, a broadcast list from the U.S. Embassy, and they've they've said that, you know, some people have experienced some taunting and that same kind of disparaging language. Wow. Yeah. I mean, 
what's good is that we are starting real information campaigns. So regardless of, you know, where, where it came from, the media actually more so than the government has taken it upon themselves to now have information bands going around um, with announcements in local languages so that people can be educated because that's really where it all comes from is, you know, unfortunately it's state sponsored hate that ultimately is being happening. That's happening there, which is really terrible. And we don't have that going on, but these are really strange times. Like the world is absolutely changing. Well, I actually have two kind of interesting follow-up stories. One, I would completely like to commend the U.S. Embassy out of Bangkok for their communication with U.S. citizens. I've read the articles on CNN and in the New York Times and the people that were stuck in Morocco and the people who were stuck in Peru and all of these places where the ambassadors and the people who are in charge of diplomacy are not taking advantage of it. And I, a long time ago, I went to a forum at the Italian embassy in DC. It was all about e-diplomacy. And it's something that I've incorporated in my work previously is using the internet and using all these social media channels to create a conversation with your populace and making sure that they understand what's going on. And I'll say this, I was completely shocked that I sent an email to the U.S. Embassy and they called me back twice. Right. Yeah, uh, just, same to, here. Just, just to follow up with me and make sure everything was okay. And and then at the same time, I look at the at Facebook and the British ambassador has had to post two videos actually asking Britons to please be nicer to their consular staff. And I do make sure that at the end of every letter that I write to the U.S. Embassy that I say thank you. Thank you for the great job that you're doing. Thank you for keeping us informed. And I mean, they send out sometimes two emails a day just letting us know all the changes that are going on because everything is so fluid. There's no way to actually anything to be fully fixed. And in terms of the stigma that you were just talking about, I had a very interesting conversation with my mother last night who lives in Washington, D.C. And she informed me that one of her friends who works for Howard University Hospital on the administrative side they actually had several people in the office test positive for COVID, yet she did not tell my mother. And my mother had been driving her around and including visiting my significantly older grandmother, and she didn't tell her. And then my mother went to ask her about, oh, has anybody in your office been diagnosed? And she actually flat out lied. And I couldn't believe it because this is a woman who I've known for over 20 years. And she just said, no, there's no, there's no positive tests in our office. And I mean, the fact that she, I I think about that Michigan bus driver who was talking about the woman coughing when she got on the bus. And I, I think perhaps there, I mean, I've seen a few articles about the kind of stigma that people are feeling around it. And they're kind of comparing it to when AIDS was still grid and not necessarily feeling like it's comfortable that they can say it. But I was dead shocked that this woman had been riding around with my mother, who is over 70 years old, in the car with her. And she had had somebody test. She'd had several people test positive and not just in the administrative section of the hospital, but specifically in her department. Wow. So she flat out lied. 
And yes, and when my mother asked her this morning in American time, she didn't want to bring up the woman's name who had given her the information about the fact that the the positive tests had come back, who was a nurse at the hospital. So she Mm -hmm. just asked her, she said, oh, by the way, you know, your office has been closed for a week or two now. Have any positive tests come back? And she said flat out, no, nobody has any positive tests. And my mother, just to follow up, went back to the nurse who she had originally gotten this information from, who works at the same hospital. And she said, well, was there any possible way that she didn't know? And they said, no, because what they're doing is they're saying, hey, you've been in contact with someone, you've been in close contact with someone who has this and you need to come in and get tested. And this woman doesn't have a car. And so because she doesn't have a car, my mother was taking her around to go, you know, as we so-called Americans are doing, are kind of hoarding things. So exactly. We've been taking her around to go to to Costco and to to Walmart and to the the Safeway and everything like that. And meanwhile, she hadn't said a single word about it. I, I mean, I was deeply upset about that. And once again, I I think about the fact that I'm in Thailand and I'm extraordinarily thankful that this is where I am and this is where I'm going to ride out these unknown days. Wow. That's so shocking. That's so shocking. I just can't believe it. But basically she was protecting herself, Mm -hmm. but putting your mother and whomever else your mother comes in contact with at risk. I mean, she went to my grandmother's house. My grandmother's 89 years old. And uh, I mean, it's just, uh, it was absolutely shocking. And obviously this woman doesn't have a car. So she did need, she needed the assistance with getting around in order to go shopping. But goodness Mm -hmm. gracious, I mean, this is the kind of like social irresponsibility that like when I see these pastors who are, who are still giving, uh, giving these services or these mega mosques that they were showing in Lagos that just refused to shut down. I, I, I think about the fact that, okay, so yes, I'm in Thailand and some of my civil liberties, yes, you could say they've been trampled on, but I'm saying trample on them, please, and keep me safe. I'm, I'm exactly. okay with wearing a face mask. I like the fact that when I go into the grocery store, they take my temperature and offer me hand sanitizer. I'm, exactly. I'm perfectly okay with it. Exactly. I feel that way too. Everywhere, face masks wash your hands and hand sanitizer. And if I don't see that going on in a place here, then I don't go in because then they're not really being focused on what we need to be doing. So even the fruit stand ladies, hand sanitizer, mm-hmm. you can't touch fruit unless you sanitize your hands. So oh, that's great. We're, yeah, we're getting smart. So, okay, let's change topic. <laughs> oh, well, let's the only reason why I, I just kind of, it, it, I was kind of going to segue into the fact that a lot of this has to do with communications and that's my yeah. background. And I just, I have to say one thing is that the CDC did put out a manual that talked about how to communicate to the public when you have a major health crisis and every single thing that the person who currently occupies the White House has done has been an exact opposite of what the CDC's manual is. And so, I mean, I, I'm like, communications is so important. And I think a lot of times people kind of think of that, that undergraduate degree of mass communications, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but communications is integral to every single part of our life. And I think about some of the work that you and I have done together, where we try to innovate inside of the area of of health communication specifically, whether or not it was on the use of menstrual cups, where we had a taboo issue going on, or whether or not it was the use of female condoms, and whether or not we're talking to a population in New Orleans, 
which actually have a higher infection rate than the population in Accra. And I mean, communication is absolutely key and health communications. I feel right now I've been transitioning a lot of what I'm doing right now into focusing more on health communications. As the lockdowns become lifted, I feel that while I love doing capacity building for uh, women entrepreneurs, whether or not that's helping them with their viability models or helping them realize who their customer is and how to reach them, the real important thing is going to be health communications. And for the next 18 months, that's what's going to be dominating the consultant sector. At least that's what I feel. Yeah, I would agree. Particularly, around, yes, definitely in communications. That's something... And doing it well and doing it in um, local languages is going to be key in local context as well, because I think a lot of what comes out does not speak to the masses. And and when you miss the masses, you miss everything. You know, I mean, I'm I'm sure you remember we had a, a small incident with a Caucasian gentleman who was just not willing to listen to the people of color, although we were not from that particular region. We were trying to explain to them that you need to talk to the imam first. You're talking about women's health issues. And then you certainly can't go around and have these menstrual cups in people's ears. And I I think you might remember that photograph that Mm -hmm. went out on Facebook Mm -hmm. and, and how disgusted we all were with it. And I mean, whether or not it was Luis in Colombia or you in Ghana or Salim in, in Nairobi, or, or, or me in Germany, I think at the time, we were just all deeply disturbed by the lack of consideration of local culture um, that was that was placed inside of that inside of this effort to. I mean, yes, his heart was good. I mean, he wanted to spread the use of menstrual cups to stop women from using unsanitary products. But it was absolutely zero consideration for local culture or local norms. Right, right. There was the silos. So just so that we can give our listeners a bit of context. So Jan and I have worked together on, as she mentioned, a couple of projects. So the first one was one that was called Flirt with the World. And we did a World AIDS Day activation in Accra, Ghana. We did another activation in New Orleans where around Essence Festival where Yana was based at the time. And it was part of what we called a million condom giveaway. So we went into the community, did education and training on how to use female condoms. Our focus was on all condoms, but particularly female condoms to empower women to take their sexual and reproductive health into their own hands. So we worked with local NGOs and trained them and provided them with the condoms and then went out into activations throughout the city of Accra and also in New Orleans. And um, it was really, for me, it was it was a real eye-opener, again, about how getting close to people opens their eyes and opens their hearts so that they're actually more willing to adopt new practices. Like, that was clear. So we could have been doing all kinds of TV, radio, we, you know, we obviously did that. But the most impactful part of the work was actually being in front of people. So that is kind of a fear that I have now in thinking about how the world is changing because so many people don't have access to the platforms and the technology that we are now potentially being forced to move into to communicate Mm -hmm. and educate people with. And so I think, as you said, as health um, communications and communications consultants, there has to be some way that we start thinking about, okay, is it through vans? 
Or is it just simply making sure that people are super suited and go out and do the ash, like looking like the, you know, the space invaders and really still communicating with people? It's just it's just so much that we have to start thinking about. And also eliminating the stigma. I mean, just just for instance, like I said, that story took place in Washington, D.C., where right. and, and it was somebody who works at a hospital. And my mother works with the yeah. National Medical Association, which is the the which was the AMA for black doctors during the time of segregation and, and still exists. So you're talking about people who are within the healthcare profession, and yet you're still talking about the stigma that's attached. So you can only imagine what's going on in, in your smaller villages and especially places where you may have religious leaders who aren't necessarily in step with what the government is doing. So, yeah, I mean, the communications and I I would like to call out one thing is that I think one of the great things that we really did in working to try and reach people on their own level was using the peer to peer model of instead of Mm -hmm. instead of us as adults talking to 15 year olds or 13 year olds. It was the idea that we took the time to train these teenagers who were our responsible flirters, who then went out and spoke to spoke to people their own age and encouraged them. Do you remember that many of them were encouraged not only to take their, their sack with their condoms in it, but also to go and get their HIV test on the beach that day? Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that and comes from I think it comes from responsible communications and, and accessible communications. And that's really where where my passion lies in is truly in the accessible side of communications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Yana, tell us a little bit more about how you got to this point, because we obviously know that you moved from your home and now you're abroad. Kind of give us a little bit of a, a flashback from the Yana that was in D.C. to the Yana that's now in Thailand. Well, why don't I give us a Florence flashback and put it all into <laughs> relations of since I've known Miss Florence Adu. And I'm slightly younger than you. And so when we met, I was still in college and I right. was going to Howard University and I left to go. My undergraduate degree is in photography specifically focused on documentary photography. And during the time that you knew me in D.C., I barely kept myself in D.C., even though I was supposed to be in college. I was constantly in Brazil or the Dominican Republic, Senegal, Cape Verde, various places, photographing and taking the time to really try and understand what was going on in each community so that I was able to capture images that you wouldn't get with your iPhone just on these, I must admit, I have an issue with a lot of these kind of, is these nouveau trips that the millennial, young millennials, black millennials are taking, where they're spending 4500 to $5,000 to go to Zanzibar, but yet they never meet anybody who speaks Swahili. They spend their time around other Americans mm-hmm. and take so, I mean, that's that's once again, I mean, my love of communications can date back all the way to then. Um, I speak French. I speak Spanish. I speak Portuguese. I speak Cape Verdean Creole. I speak some Arabic and a little bit of Italian. So obviously you can tell I like to talk and, and that ability to communicate and even just to make the effort to try and meet somebody on their their level is where I drive a lot of my inspiration. So 
after I graduated from university, I left the United States on what was just supposed to be a quick jaunt around Europe, but I fell in love with Portugal and I wound up staying there and working as a English as an English teacher. And I stayed in Portugal for a while and when I returned back to the US, I had a su- bit of a surprise because I was called up for a job and it turned out it was at the White House. So I wound up working as a graphic designer during the last few months of Clinton's presidency, which I guess just truly dates me. So um, then uh, I went on to work with the uh, United States Postal Service as what's called a visual communication specialist, which is kind of government speak for graphic designer. And at the time, I had this amazing boss who really let me bring in some innovation into this kind of stodgy, stagnant organization that employed at the time over 900,000 people. And for instance, I put two black people on the front and the back cover of the annual report. It was the first time in the history of the Postal Service that there had been black people on the cover of the annual report. So uh, at the same time, I, I worked with the vice president of communications and they really encouraged me to learn how to take my idea and pitch it all the way up the food chain to the postmaster general. And I I truly appreciate those people that I worked with there because their on-the-job training, their capacity building that they did with me is what has allowed me to then go forward and work in international communications. So I, I left the Postal Service. I moved to Mozambique. I worked in Mozambique shortly for a while. I had said I was moving to Miami, but Mozambique, Maputo, Miami, they both begin with an M. So, you know figured I was still on the right page. (laughs) And then I headed back to the Caribbean. I headed back to the Caribbean shortly to work in the Cayman Islands, still all the while remaining in the communications field. I had the opportunity to photograph in Madagascar, deep, deep, deep in the bush. And at the time I was 27 and I will never forget this. It was a program where they took young Malagasy's who had graduated from high school and they had done particularly well. They got the opportunity to go to college and to medical school in France, but in return, they had to do three years of rural medicine in Madagascar. And, you know, Madagascar is truly, truly the bush uh, when you're talking about rural medicine. And so I, I went on an amazing adventure in Madagascar, photographing and creating photo essays for the Swiss Development Bank and JSI about these doctors. And I will never forget walking into one village. A gentleman had met us on the side of the road and he had a big straw hat on. He had a walking stick and a loincloth. And he walked us three hours into the bush to get to the town. And right when we were at the edge of the town, the doctor turns to me and she said to me in French, please don't be alarmed but here people are going to speak to you with a lot of respect. And I was, I thought, I'm 27. Why would I get any respect? <laughs> and I then found out that one of the things that they were doing was trying to work on family planning because 13-year-olds is about the first time that people started having babies. So by the time that you're 27, you're a grandmother. Uh, and that was one of the things that truly hit me. I was 27 and I was thinking, wow, I would be a grandmother and I wouldn't be a grandmother of one. I'd be a grandmother of maybe four or five. 
And here I am taking these photographs, which I can share several of them in the podcast link yeah, and that show these young women. I mean, these girls, they, you can tell they're, they're 12, they're 13. Their faces are so very, very young looking and they're standing there and they're holding their baby because the doctors are coming in to not only do family planning, but also do prenatal and postnatal care. Mm-hmm. Because one of the mm-hmm. issues there was that because there was no family planning, children, and I'm, I'm going to call them children because a 13-year-old is a child. 13-year-olds are getting pregnant and they have between eight and nine children. However, you're only talking about a survival rate of three or four. So they put their bodies through all of this and they only have three or four children that that actually survived this whole this whole ordeal. So that was one of my truly interesting assignments was was in Madagascar. I wound up having kind of a, a relationship with Mozambique that was kind of unbreakable. After the Cayman Islands, I moved down to oh, I worked in Qatar briefly in the Middle East. And that was a truly interesting experience, looking at conspicuous consumption in all of its glory. And um, I wasn't quite ready for it back in 2006. I uh, then went on to work down in Argentina, where I formed a business because of the volume of clients that we had. I combined my business with two other people. And we had 60 people working for us. And we were doing web development and marketing communications. And this is in the age of Flash, with the program Flash. From there, I, I moved to Peru because I had one particular client who I wanted to change their supply chain after we visited China and saw that their supply chain were sweatshops. Although I will admit, he said, it's not a sweatshop. They're wearing four jackets. And I was just like, oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> Sure. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, you understand they're wearing four jackets because there's no air conditioning or heating in here. We're standing yeah. in the manager's office where there's plenty of heat and it's super warm. But these women who are on the floor are wearing four jackets and multiple gloves and doing all this. And I was like, come on, we can do better if we move production to Peru. We can work with organizations that have health care and also have daycare for the women yeah. that work for them. Um, so I wound up so I wound up working in Peru for a while. And then once again, Florence comes back into my life and truly saves me when we had a minor incident around the Obama inauguration when our location was um, our location was disappeared and I had organized a pan-African fashion show and all of a sudden we had no location. So through lovely small town, Florence and several other friends offered themselves up to walk through these different events in the gowns that were created by these female uh, fashion houses that were ranging from South Africa to uh, Senegal, Kenya. I mean, I can't even remember where else those dresses came from. But yeah, so we we did that one together too. So I guess that might have been actually before Flirt with the World. Yeah, um, yeah, I totally that forgot. Was, yeah, that's not true. That, that, huh, was, a, that was inauguration. Yeah. yeah. And um, shortly after that, I, I was working on a project that was called Shop for Sustainability, 
for an organization called All for Africa. And they had a model that was based on palm oil trusts, which I felt kind of ambiguous about, I will admit. But what they had me doing was sourcing items. Instead of giving away tchotchkes that were made in China, they had me sourcing items that were people positive or green projects. And I came across some absolutely amazing projects in South Africa and Zambia and Swaziland. And so I worked on that. I worked on the shop for sustainability and created some truly amazing items for them. And then I went back to Qatar, where I wound up working for 21st Century Leaders Foundation. And uh, that had me all over the place from northern Mozambique, where we took two young women to show them what life was like only five hours away from Qatar, which is in the poor, one of the poorest Muslim communities in the world. And they did this amazing fundraising through a book afterwards. And I worked on a music video that actually came in number one in Eastern Europe for that year. It was the number one music video. I wrote a lot of propaganda during those days. It was during the time that Qatar was bidding on the World Cup. And so I tried to balance the good work that I was doing with 21st century leaders that was in South Africa, Mozambique, and Tanzania with the kind of, let's say, other side of communications that I was doing with the corporations and the government in Qatar. And I I guess I I spent a lot of time just kind of bouncing back and forth between Qatar and, and Thailand. I fell in love with Muay Thai in Thailand, so I started really loving the fact that anytime I had a break, I would run to Thailand and go train Muay Thai for a few weeks and had some really awesome projects that I worked on here that involved people like Alistair Overeem teaching young Cambodian girls how self-defense. One of the cutest photographs I think I've ever taken in my life. And then most recently wound up working in Papua New Guinea. And now true, I skipped over a couple of countries. Uh, I was in Kenya, uh, back and forth between Kenya and Dubai and Thailand for quite some time, but then I recently worked in Papua New Guinea, which was the biggest eye-opening experience of my life. I mean, I thought that I had seen everything in the world. I had traveled, I had lived, I had been, I thought I'd been everywhere. And I, there was nothing on earth that could have prepared me for what I encountered in Papua New Guinea. And that's when communications really took on a different level for me because it became about safety and about women's safety. Because during the time that I was living there, the BBC put out a video saying that Port Moresby, where I live, the capital, was the most dangerous city in the world to be a woman. And I remember going into my office on a daily basis and there would be black eyes, broken arms, sprained wrists, sprained ankles, uh, scratched faces. I mean, they even had a word for it called glassing. And I'd never heard this before. And glassing is apparently what happens when you're in the club and people, some guy just takes a bottle, uh, a beer bottle that's made of glass and smashes it into the face of someone called glassing. And, wow. Um, and the level of violence, the level of violence that I saw there, and I, I believe I told you one story about a woman who was offered a scholarship 
to be a community health worker. However, because of the lack of communications and the difficulty in, in getting messages to people, her husband received the message that she received that she won the scholarship before she did. And when she came home, he took an axe and split her legs open and poured cement into them. And that poor woman hung on for three or four weeks in the hospital until she finally succumbed to the injuries. And hearing stories like this, hearing these issues of rape, hearing these these women in my own office telling me their own stories about domestic violence, I, it had never come that close to me before. And I had never thought about trying to combine things that I love, like kickboxing mm-hmm. and building the capacity of people and trying to use that for the healthful gain. So I was very happy. I got a lot of the women in the office involved in the True Women Warriors program, and they would come and learn boxing on Saturdays. And it wasn't I wasn't encouraging them to fight and to punch people, but physical exercise, and, and this in particular, does give you a lot of self-esteem. And these these women were not only learning some self-defense, but they were also building up their, their own personal capacity and their, their own reflexes to the domestic violence issue. So while you were there, so what do you think are some of the root causes of, of that kind of behavior? Because, you know, Papua New Guinea is pretty remote. It's not really exposed to a lot of the Western world. And maybe that is part of the challenge. I remember you talking about how isolated your living was. So sure, you went into the office, but beyond your being able to socialize with the people there, like what was that experience on the ground? Well, I mean, on the ground, I think you will definitely remember that I was going a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs because the under yeah. my contract, I was not allowed to walk more than one block. It was against my contract. It wasn't safe enough. So in Papua New Guinea, in Port Moresby, most expats live in hotels. So I have a driver that comes and picks me up in the morning. They drop me off at the office. The driver picks me up, takes me back to the hotel. My hotel has, you know, 15 floors. They've got a pool. They've got a gym. They've got a spa. They even have a supermarket. They have an executive lounge floor. And it was one of the first times in my life that I actually found myself gravitating towards Americans and and truly hanging out with Americans. And I will recount one story. I met a Kenyan woman there and it was very odd because it turned out she had lived across the street from where I was living in Kenya. And here we run into each other in Papua New Guinea. And her husband, who had gone to the university in the UK, he was always kind of talking about the difference in how white people treat you to your face and to your back. And because she went through university and all of her her master's degree and everything like that in Nairobi, she never really had the the experience of being a minority. And Mm -hmm. I remember her telling me, we would be sitting upstairs and because there's nothing to do, there was daily happy hour. And we would be sitting at happy hour and she would tell me about her day. She worked at the U.S. Embassy And she'd tell me about her day. And then people that I knew who worked at the embassy would come in and she'd immediately get up and leave. And I finally asked her, I said, what's going on? Why are you leaving? And she's like, these people don't talk to me. She's like, they they barely say hello to me just to be polite in the office. But every time that I've tried to initiate a conversation with them outside of the embassy, they have nothing to say to me. And I... Of course, of course, you know, it's me. So, of course, I called them out on it. I was like, what is this nonsense? 
I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, how are you not talking to Grace? And they're like, oh, we just don't have anything in common with her. You know, she's Kenyan. She's not American. And <gasps> I'm, I'm just like, okay, well, at least, at least your reasoning was she's not American. It wasn't that she was black. It was just that mm-hmm. she wasn't American, even though I still didn't like the reasoning. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, equally, she she came into this feeling of the otherness that we're so accustomed to experiencing, having grown up in European or or, mm-hmm. or American cultures. But yeah, it was it was interesting. It was definitely everything about PNG was an interesting experience, and I say interesting in the fact that I will never step foot on that island again. Um, ah. And and when you ask me about why do I think that there's so many issues about domestic violence, when you watch that video, which which you can easily find the link to, it's called Port Moresby, Most Dangerous City to Be a Woman. Mm-hmm. You hear these men talking and they actually say things like, well, no, beating our women is part of our culture. And no matter where I've lived before, I had never even in the strictest Muslim communities, I had never, ever heard anything that said that beating our women is part of our culture. So I wonder about it. And you're talking about a place that is extraordinarily remote. There's 875 languages spoken across the island. The the tribes are constantly warring between each other. I mean, we had issues where we couldn't take women from this village to let them stay overnight in this village because if they did, they would get raped or they might get killed because the men from that village don't like those women. I mean, and just, it was just so, I mean, there was so much violence constantly there. And I admit, I will even, I even recall after APEC, the Asia Pacific economic conference that took place and it was hosted in Papua New Guinea that it was hosted in Papua New Guinea that year and listening to the nonsense that was going on, like the purchase of the Maseratis and everything like this. But you had this situation where, the police didn't get paid two weeks after APEC took place. And they actually went in and looted parliament, the police. Wow. Huh. So, I mean, so it's like, I don't know whether or not the left, I mean, you read it in the newspaper, you know, somebody got killed because they planted on their neighbor's plot, you know, this, their small gardening plots. And so I don't know whether or not the violence is just about the violence against women or if it's just, it's a generally violent nature. But one thing I will admit, well, one thing I will note is that 90% of the women that are in jail in Papua New Guinea are in jail for domestic violence. Whereas only 10% of the men that are in jail in Papua New Guinea are in jail for domestic violence. So you're saying that they're in jail because they retaliated? They retaliated. Ah. They so- retaliate, they lose their children, they lose their freedom, and that's how it goes. That's so, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking, number one, but I think that they said it was culture. And I will say that I have heard um, that in Africa. I've heard, you know, there been Islamic, uh, particularly in, you know, Nigeria and here in Ghana, actually, where they've been shunned because they've used the Quran and said, the Quran says, I can beat my wife, so I'm going to beat my wife. And so we, we do have domestic abuse issues here quite, you know, there's just that mm-hmm. entitlement which I believe in some ways is, is in some ways it's kind of a bastardized adoption of the patriarchal Western ways because our cultures never subjugated women, not in that way. Everyone played their part. Women were revered. There were women kings, 
so to speak, if you want to use that same word. So even, you know, in our, our longstanding wars, just in Ghana, our longstanding wars with the, the British, there were women who were the warriors. Not them. Yeah, yeah so, exactly. So, I mean, the messages of colonialism are deep. And I think it's the culture that they decided to keep because they understood that their physical prowess could keep them in a powerful, powerful way. I don't believe well, that it's their culture. I think it's what they adopted based on, you know, whatever physically they had to do to quote unquote survive. That's it for the program this week, Local Citizens. As always, you can find us at localcitizenspod.com on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Bye for now. Bye.